Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. I'm the host of today's show. Our interview is with Chris Jones, a research associate at the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Laboratory known as RAIL and a doctoral student in the Energy and Resources Group at the University of California, Berkeley. His primary research interests intersect the fields of industrial ecology, environmental psychology, ecological economics, and climate change policy. He is lead developer of the Cool Climate Calculator, an online tool that allows households and businesses to estimate their complete carbon footprints, compare their results to similar users, and develop personalized climate action plans to reduce their contribution to climate change. Versions of this tool have been adopted by the state of California via the Cool Climate Network Partnership, along with non-governmental organizations and communities throughout the United States. Chris Jones, welcome to Spectrum. Thank you very much, Brad. Thank you for having me. Can you give us an overview of the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Lab? Sure. RAIL, as we call it, is a multidisciplinary energy research lab on campus. Uh, The director is Professor uh, Dan Kamen. He's a leading energy expert in really a broad range of disciplines. And and the important part about RAIL and the Energy and Resources Group is that it's multidisciplinary. So uh, everybody at ERG has to do engineering, policy, environmental sciences, social sciences. There's also a lot of law and business and public health. And we put it all together. RAIL is really solutions-oriented, so we're looking at developing programs, technology, and policy, and putting them together both in developing country contexts and in developed countries, for example, here in the United States. So the lab is this interdisciplinary group, and do you have a certain focus for yourself? We've been developing online carbon management software for quite some time now. And we are also developing uh, programs that uh, use these carbon management tools. So we do life cycle assessment and we do behavioral sciences. We try to put those two uh, disciplines together in new ways. And I think the life cycle assessment, I'd be, I'm curious about how you, how you go about doing that. Sure. Life cycle assessment is really the foundation of the work that we do in the lab in the Cool Climate Network, which develops these online carbon management tools. Life cycle analysis fundamentally is just looking at the materials and the processes that go into a product or a service, and then applying emission factors essentially for each of the material and the inputs. The problem is, of course, is that for any given product, there could be hundreds of companies involved or more in making any individual product. So it can get uh, rather complicated. What you end up doing is making certain assumptions about average materials or average products and trying to figure out what are the important components of that product and then coming up with an estimate. Of course, 
people have different ways, different researchers have different assumptions that go into you know analysis. So you could get different researchers doing analysis of the same product and come up with different answers many times. Thankfully, there are international standards of doing this stuff. We really look not at the product level, but at the full consumer level. So uh, we might look at the typical American household and say, well, how much meat do they consume? How much dairy do they consume? How many grains uh, and how much vegetables do they consume? And come up with an estimate of their total food carbon footprint. And then compare that to their transportation footprint, their energy footprint, waste, to come up with a full, more comprehensive analysis. So we're really looking at the high level. And then some of the uncertainties in the individual product lifecycle assessment can kind of um, the, the impact of those is less important. So the focus is on a broader use pattern rather than discrete individual products. Yeah, exactly. And in some sense, for some people, being able to differentiate between individual products is, is the holy grail for many people. So being able to tell the difference between product A or B, which one should I select? The problem is that given uncertainties in life cycle assessment, the uncertainty or the margin of error is often greater than the difference between the competing products. So you really will never be able to tell the difference between Coke or Pepsi. But what we can tell is that on average, soda has this impact and milk has something else and water has a very different carbon footprint. Those are the types of data that we can provide to individuals that I think is useful and meaningful as, as well and that we have actually good data to support. Do you use some data and not other data because of those those very differences that you were talking about? And how do you choose what data is going to be the best? We have to look at how other practitioners are using the data and which data are the most highly vetted. But in many cases, we need to use uh, new data. And so it really is a ongoing process of validation using the peer review system uh, as kind of a minimum bar for validating the types of data that we think could be used. Is the lab trying to do some data generation of its own? We are mainly providing secondary data and analysis and algorithms that we try to make freely available. We think that providing sophisticated analysis that's that's also transparent and we develop into this online software that's user-friendly that we make freely available. We think that that really is our value in collecting a lot of the data, putting it together in new and useful ways. So in terms of collecting raw data, we don't actually collect a lot of our own raw data. So in building your models, are there any overarching algorithm approaches, or is each case separate? Well, each case is is very different. There little engineering models that we put together for either each kind of product or each behavior that we're trying to change. And oftentimes we draw on existing research, and those models can be very different. At the end of the day, though, it really comes down to pretty simple math, back-of-the-envelope calculations, and many times they they really do start out on the corner of a piece of paper somewhere, and we, you know, we put them into our spreadsheet models. We also do uh, different econometric models. We do engineering analysis, energy analysis, life cycle, input-output analysis. And uh, we do try to look at what other researchers are, are doing. I think it's really important for researchers to be able to share methods, be able to share data. And through online systems, you can actually do that in really interesting and new ways. 
It's called open data or linked data. So if you want the carbon footprint of a product, you should just be able to put in your software carbon footprint, this product, and anybody who's done research on that, the data should just pop right into your website, and it should be done in real time. So there's a movement to make open and linked data widely and freely available. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We are talking with Chris Jones about the carbon footprint calculator he helped develop called the Cool Climate Calculator. You can try it at the website coolcalifornia.org. The Cool Climate Calculator is focused now in the United States, and what are your plans for taking it beyond that? In fact, the next stage is to develop international versions of the calculator. So we've already, in partnership with researchers in Brazil, built a Brazilian one version. We've built a version for the U.S. Virgin Islands. We're developing a a version now for Sweden. And we have a broad international data set that we're going to be using to develop international version of the tool. We're also trying to get much more specific and local and better within the United States. So to get these estimates at the city level, actually something we've developed but haven't launched on the online interface yet. Ultimately, we'd like the city of Berkeley and the city of Los Angeles and you know, any city in the United States, actually, to have an online portal, kind of a dashboard system uh, that has all this information displayed in really useful ways. And also, ultimately, we'd like to do it over time as well. And we have these estimates to see how uh, cities are meeting their climate action goals, for example, to see how users within a particular community are using the tool, engaging with their community-based programs to set targets, engage in local programs, and not only make pledges, but actually make reductions and track those over time. It would seem that Americans are so much more wasteful than the international community in general, so that the contrast that you create... If we can do it here, then... (laughs) with, With having the website able to contrast what it's like, California versus Italy versus Spain... And it turns out the the largest contributors in the United States to carbon footprints often are not the largest contributors elsewhere. In many countries, they have larger sources of renewable energy, uh, hydro energy, nuclear energy, which means that emissions from energy consumption are much, much lower. Half of our energy electricity is produced by coal. A huge carbon footprint from using energy in this country. It's less in California, but we have a lot of natural gas. And it turns out that in many developing countries, it's actually food that is the largest impact. You know, these comparisons internationally are really interesting. But ultimately, you're right. I mean, the United States, our carbon footprint is on average five times greater than the global average. So let's say we're able to reduce our emissions by 80%. Well, that would just get us to the current global average. And if everybody lived like that, we would have the existing emissions of greenhouse gases. We need to get 80% below that in order to stabilize the climate. We need to think about what types of programs we put in place in order for us to get there. A lot of people look at individual behavior and they say, well, that's not where it is. Um, You know, we have to change policy. We have to change technology. And of course, those things are true. However, 
we won't get all the way there through policy and technology. We, the studies that we've done through other studies that I've seen from other groups, that what is in place and projected won't actually get us there. We need to change behavior. And through individual behavior, anybody who's taken steps to reduce their own impact immediately wants to do collective action. They want to show others uh, what they've done. And it's much more powerful if they can move towards collective action. And then from collective action, they often move to political action. So we say, well, it's a chicken and egg thing. We say we can't do anything without political will. Well, you're not going to get political will without getting people involved. And so by showing people that this is actually easy, fun, makes your life better, you would ultimately generate the political will. So I think behavior needs to play an important role. And it's all behavior. People need to adopt the technology. That's behavior. People need to adopt the policy, support the politicians that are going to drive change. And so really understanding individual behavior, I think, is really an important key to invest in it. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We are talking with Chris Jones about his work to influence greenhouse gas-related behavior by individuals, families, businesses, and communities. What is it that refines the data? Can you characterize how the data gets better? We like to develop smart tools. Ultimately, we'd like to develop learning tools, Uh, learning tools that can collect data from all of the users and then be able to use that in ways that can help inform the development of the, of the, the tools as well, particularly things like the recommendations. So we could look at the most popular recommendations or how many people are taking this particular action, how much total CO2 are people saving from these uh, particular actions. We also have a lot of work, just basic research grunt work in collecting all of these new data sets because there's so many that go into our tools and updating them all the time. And it's just a constant task for us to do to keep these tools updated. Now, if the data were smart and linked in an open data and linked data framework, our job would be much, much easier. But we have to make our own data open and linked as well before we can expect that from others. Ultimately, someday, hopefully, um, these tools will get much smarter, much quicker. So the real goal then is to make your program the centralized repository. We can think of it like a hub a hub of part of a network, a large network. And so hopefully our hub will support lots of other initiatives. And of course, there'll be other hubs out there as well. But the important thing is to kind of link this kind of sophisticated, this information network together in a way that it was optimal, that, that kind of meets everybody's needs at the lowest cost, lowest amount of investment. I think uh, and Dan Kamen, uh, director of our lab, has said this many times, the greatest barrier out there right now is just lack of technical expertise in solving all of these problems. There's a tremendous need for research capacity, for intellectual capacity, because all of these disciplines need to work together. So a lot of experts in many dis- different disciplines, but how do they work together? We have a limited kind of ability to solve these problems collectively, and if we're all doing the similar work, we're certainly not optimizing our potential. So somehow we have to learn to communicate in a much more effective way. That's a real challenge. 
Well, it's a real challenge. Even on campus, we don't know what each other are doing. I had a meeting last week in a research lab and told them about the data that we had. And they're like, well, great. That would save us months worth of work. We're planning on doing the same thing. They didn't know we had it. And, you know, there are over 400 researchers on campus, faculty, doing environmental research just right here on campus. And we often don't know what each other are doing. I'm not faculty. I I work under Dan. So Dan has, you know, he's one of the 400. And then Dan has staff and uh, graduate students who are all doing different things too. And that's just right here on campus, much less statewide, nationally, internationally. It is really a a challenge to know what what people are doing. And more and more people don't want to share what they're doing until it's done. So it is a a challenge. Mm -hmm. This is Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We're talking with Chris Jones about the cool climate calculator he developed. You can try this calculator at the website coolcalifornia.org. So you've mentioned that you're looking at at a more of an overview context, but do you feel that products in general should have an identifiable greenhouse gas rating or not? In terms of information on specific products, I think you need to look at you know, experts like the Good Guide, uh, who, whose job it is to evaluate what we can actually say, given what we know about particular products. And often it's not the product we know about, it's the company. But are we able to put a carbon score on an individual product? Mm, some sort of rating, I think, is possible. And I don't know if a carbon score itself is meaningful right. to people. It may not be. There's with, other issues involved. So it depends yeah. on what the product is. You know, right. If it's a cleaning product, then you care about the chemical makeup exactly. of it. As well right. as you might want to know, was it intensive carbon use to make it? But, yeah. So there's, there's a yeah. variety of things that come into the mix. Right. And it would seem that you have a large behavioral component in what you're trying to do. And so right. you don't really want to overwhelm people with data no. and, and make them more confused than they were or drive them away from even trying right. to deal with this. Right. It's it, how, how are you trying to assess what, what works, what doesn't work? Right. Well, people can quickly get overloaded with information, absolutely. And you have to be really selective with the type of information that you provide to, to people. And the context in which you provide it is really important. If it is a recommendation that comes from a friend, uh, that could be much more useful than going to some website somewhere and clicking through and trying to find out some data. We are really highly influenced by our peers. Not just what are our friends doing, what are people like us doing, but what do they expect of me? How do they expect me to behave? And those social influences are really extremely important on determining our behavior. We need to learn to tap into those social motivations and to really understand what drives people's behavior. And that is part of the work that we do through a program called the Cool California Challenge. It's a competition between California cities to be the coolest California city. So we're going to engage cities across the state in competition. We're going to choose three finalists Individuals are going to get points for doing things we want them to do. So they'll get 
points for reducing their energy consumption. They'll get points for driving their car less. Uh, we're going to use this as a social experiment to figure out what types of messages, what types of incentives, what types of rewards are going to motivate individuals, at least in a California context. And when does that start? Well, it'll start in early 2012 once we have got all of the approvals we need from the university. So people are going to be able to voluntarily share information through the program. And so we'll be picking three cool California cities, and they have the chance to even become the coolest California city. But really, it's about community building, more about collaboration than anything else. So we're using this point structure as a way to engage the community in a whole range of different efforts that they want to do already to the extent that we can quantify the mission savings from the things that they're doing, which is what we're good at, we'll be able to give them points. And those points will kind of serve as an umbrella for accomplishing uh, things that the city wants to already accomplish to meet its climate action goals, for example. Is there any point that I haven't brought up that you wanted to make about the research or the, the lab that you're part of? Well, one thing that does come up often in a university is how can people make a career of this kind of thing? Well, often my answer is, well, how can you not make a career about it? At Berkeley, we have so many opportunities to do this type of work, to do work that's meaningful. It may not be climate change-related work, but to do something that is of value to society. And we have, in some sense, an obligation to do that because we have kind of an opportunity cost. If we decide not to take this opportunity to create programs, to use this information for the benefit of society, and we decide to do something that is a little perhaps more self-serving, then we're kind of foregoing that opportunity. I, I feel like there's just tremendous amount of potential here on campus to, to really be leaders to you know making a better world. And I think that's what most people here try to do, whatever discipline they're in. Hopefully, students recognize that, hey, they want to get involved tons of things for them to do. <laughs> Volunteer your time. Find some time to you know dedicate to a research lab that's doing this stuff. We have hundreds of research tasks that need doing. It's really just endless, the, the amount of opportunities here. So people who want to get involved, lots of things to do, lots of good work to be done. Chris Jones, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum. Thank you so much for having me. To lower your carbon footprint in 2012 and beyond can be realized with the help of the Cool Climate Calculator. Visit coolcalifornia.org. That is coolcalifornia, all one word, dot O-R-G. A regular feature of Spectrum is to mention a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next few weeks. Rick Karneski joins me for the calendar. On New Year's Day this Sunday, the Ardenwood Historic Forum... 34600 Ardenwood Boulevard in Fremont, is hosting a $2 walk to a monarch butterfly overwintering site. Discover the amazing migration of these tiny creatures and how they survive the long, cold season in the eucalyptus trees. You'll use spotting scopes to see the magnificent creatures up close and personal. There are two drop-in events with no registration required. The first walk is 1130 to 1230, and the second walk is 130 to 230. Call 510 510- for more information. 
January 5th is the first Thursday of the month and thus free admission day at the UC Botanical Garden. The garden is open 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. There is a docent tour at 1.30 p.m. On the first Thursdays of the month, the Exploratorium next to the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco hosts After Dark from 6 to 10 p.m. for guests 18 and over. Enjoy the standard museum exhibits, cocktails for purchase, and special attractions that vary by the month's theme. January's theme is Rock, Paper, Scissors. In addition to a tournament, the Exploratorium will have a talk by evolutionary ecologist Barry Cernervo on how the evolutionary game of Rock, Paper, Scissors is played by the common side-blotched lizard. Learn how the game is found in hundreds of species worldwide and how it drives the formation of new lizard species. In keeping with the rock part of the theme, Slack National Accelerator Laboratory scientist Sam Webb reveals how paleontologists determine pigmentation patterns in dinosaur skin and feathers by using intense x-rays to excite copper, calcium, and other elemental atoms embedded in fossils. Paper brings you collaborative ink drawing, and scissors brings you complimentary haircuts. Admission is $15, $12 for seniors, students, and persons with disabilities, or is free for members. Visit www.exploratorium.edu slash afterdark for more information. The Bay Area Skeptics present a talk titled Skepticism and Critical Thinking, Teaching Our Children and Ourselves. This free event is presented by Dr. Matt Norman, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Department of Psychology at University of the Pacific. He characterizes the talk by saying, We all need to evaluate the world critically and scientifically. Without this ability, we fall prey to anyone wishing to sell us goods and services regardless of their true efficacy, effectiveness, or even harmfulness. This will be Wednesday, January 11th at Café Valparaiso, 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. The talk begins at 7 p.m. Thursdays, the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park hosts nightlife from 6 to 10 p.m. for guests 21 and over. There is no nightlife for January 5th. Consider heading to the Exploratorium instead. There will be nightlife on January 12th. The theme is how-to. In honor of the new year, nightlife is teaming up with experts at Skillshare, Make SF, The Distilled Man, and The Bike Kitchen to create the ultimate how-to workshop. At stations throughout the building, learn to play guitar, build a bike, juggle, boil an egg, pin insects, DJ like a pro with help from the Urban Music Program, and even how to impress your date with your knowledge of the cosmos. It's also your last chance to visit the live reindeer, see the aurora borealis in the snowman theater, and dance under a snow flurry in the piazza before the season for science closes on January 16th. Tickets are $12 or $10 for Academy members. For details and tickets, please visit bit.ly nl-info. Now several news stories. The Kepler Space Telescope has found the first two Earth-sized exoplanets. The planets are currently denoted Kepler-20e and Kepler-20f, and orbit a sun-like star called Kepler-20 that is 950 light-years from us. Kepler-20e is 87% of the Earth's size, but at 1,040 Kelvin, it is hot enough that it has most likely evaporated any atmosphere. Kepler-20f might have an atmosphere and is only 3% larger than Earth. At 705 Kelvin, it is still quite warm. UC Santa Cruz planetary scientist Jonathan Forney claims, if it started out with the amount of water we had on Earth and Venus, it's probably long gone, just like it is on Venus. But if that planet had a tremendous amount more water, 
then it might have some left over. The Kepler-20 system includes an additional three larger planets, and, surprisingly, these have orbits that alternate with the small Earth-sized planets. ScienceNow reports that pigeons can learn basic math. While many species can discriminate quantities, few were thought to be able to reason numerically. In fact, many believed only primates can do this. Damien Scarf and his colleagues of the University of Octago in New Zealand trained pigeons to sort sets by the number of objects within the set, regardless of the color or shape of objects that the set contained. Duke University neuroscientist Elizabeth Brannan noted that, despite completely different brain organization and hundreds of millions of years of evolutionary divergence, pigeons and monkeys solved this problem in a similar way. The findings make scientists optimistic about finding basic and perhaps even advanced mathematical skills in other animals. The music heard during the show is from a David Lostana album titled Folk and Acoustic. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. We are happy to hear from listeners. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. <laughs>